0: Dripping down
1: science... The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists. with me Chris Smith and also with Helen Scales Hi Helen Hello. Now on this week's programme how scientists have discovered a suicide switch for bacteria and researchers think that it could hold the key to some powerful new antibiotics so we'll be finding out about that shortly Also how soap suds are preventing fish from forming shoals Apparently the detergents they use stop them smelling each other and also beating off sunburn with a dose of, guess what, broccoli Scientists have discovered that it can ward off the effects of UV rays So that's all on the way
2: also under the microscope this week is the science of stem cells chimeric embryos and cloning technology we'll be talking with ian wilmot the scientist who created dolly the sheep and the stem cell researcher roger Peterson to discover what's involved plus we'll also be hearing from ben valsler who's been to the manchester science festival where among other people he met this luminary who some of you might remember
3: We do scientifically improve on every aspect of science every year. And we've got to tell more people about it and bring more young people in to the next generation to continue the successes.
1: Miss Johnny Ball, of course. Remember him? Well, we'll be hearing more from him later. When we'll also be getting to the bottom of this curly-haired mystery.
4: My question is about pubic hair. I want to know why do humans have it, do other animals have it, and what its function is.
2: Intriguing and the answer will definitely keep you guessing, I think, which will be coming up later in the programme.
1: Thank you very much, Helen. Now if you've got a science question for us, which is about stem cells, cloning, or chimeric embryos, or if you just want to say hi, email in Chris at the The Naked Scientists
5: Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net
1: brilliant discovery which was made this week, Helen. Um, it's been announced in the journal Science. And the person who's the first author on this paper is Ilana kalodkin gal She's from Israel, works at the Hebrew University in Jer- Jerusalem. And what they've discovered is the suicide switch for bacteria. And what we mean by this is that when you flick this switch, the bacteria turn into the bug equivalent of lemmings and they all kill themselves. And the researchers think this could lead to the generation of a whole range of new antibiotics coming at a time when you know we're really suffering from a lack of... Ways so of treating so why,
2: why do bacteria want to kill themselves anyway?
1: Well, the process that's involved is something called quorum sensing. Now, when bacteria grow, obviously when they first start growing, their numbers are very low. But as they grow more, their numbers and density of their population increases, and the bacteria squirt chemicals into their environment to tell each other how many of them there are. So the bacteria are aware of how dense their population is, and this, when it reaches a certain level, can trigger other behaviours on the part of the bacteria. But one of the behaviours that it triggers is it primes the bacteria to potentially kill themselves. And why this might be important is that if the bacterial colony gets invaded by a viral infection, by killing themselves, some of the infected bacteria can prevent the virus from spreading and affecting other members of their colony. Also, if they get stressed because there's not enough food or there are various toxins building up, by some of the bacteria killing themselves, it means that the rest of their colony can survive. But no one knew how they did this until this group got together and produced huge cultures of E. coli and they then extracted some of the chemical media that they were growing the bacteria in and went through chemical by chemical all of the things the bacteria were making until they homed in on just one factor which they called EDF the extracellular death factor and it's a short string of amino acids it's a small protein, five amino acids long and when you add that to the cultures it makes the bacteria think they're part of a very big population of bacteria so what they think you can do is if you have very small numbers of bacteria and you treat them with this chemical it makes them think that they're part of a huge population and they're therefore are more likely to die if they get stressed and so all we have to do is give them a very low dose of an antibiotic makes them stressed and they kill themselves
2: so do we think this is going to be the next way we're going to combat all those dreadful bugs that we're having trouble uh, sort of dealing with at the moment.
1: That's the hope, that it might be possible to take this technology and say, can we turn this into a drug and therefore make m- bacteria much more vulnerable to even lower doses of antibiotics or, or even possibly antibiotics that they're currently viewed as resistant to, but the antibiotic gives enough stress to the bacteria to persuade it to kill itself.
2: Excellent. And we all know that one of those ways to uh, get rid of bacteria is to wash your hands. Um, But if you thought the soap suds that you flush down the drain every time you do that or every time you take a shower were innocent, then think again. A new study has just shown that very low levels of chemicals found commonly in household products can cause fish to lose their ability to huddle together in tightly knit shoals. And that's a really vital behaviour to help them avoid being caught by predators. Now, the compound is called 4-nonalphenol, or 4-NP for short and it's also used in sewage treatment works and in pesticides so a lot of it does get into the natural water systems and into rivers and so on.
1: But what does it do to the fish?
2: Now, this is what the researchers from the Mount Allison University in New Brunswick province in Canada have just been testing. They've been putting this 4NP into tanks that have um, banded killifish in them, and these are little fish that um, live in lakes in North America. Um, and in these experimental tanks, they basically added um, one microgram of 4NP per litre, which is about the amount that is actually permissible in levels in rivers um, in so, the West.
1: So that's kind of realistic of what you'd find in sewage?
2: Absolutely. Well, no, no, in rivers, actually. Oh, actually right, out so, there so rivers, once it's yeah.
1: diluted, into the river. Absolutely. And it nev- can
2: be much higher. So this is one microgram. Apparently some of the European rivers are as high as 340 micrograms per litre. So this is really the tip of the iceberg.
1: And what happened to the fish when they so did So
2: what it? happens is, essentially, they, when they were exposed to this chemical, they shoaled uh, at least twice, if not more, further apart from each other if you like they basically avoided each other and um compared to fish that were kept in just nice clean water um, and we think it's because it's interfering with their ability to smell each other and that's how they know who they're with it's about basically about kind of a chemical composition a kind of um a fingerprint if you like that the fish pick up where they are and what they're eating so that a fish can un- can identify another fish that's been in the same place as it and it wants to stick together but with i it. thought
1: fish use vision to see where they were in relation to other fish well, not smell
2: um They may well do that as well, but this is certainly one thing they've been showing. So so these fish were keeping apart when they put them in tanks. Another thing they did is they took an individual fish and stuck it in a kind of choice chamber corridor, if you like, um, with two streams of water coming through, one of which flowed over another fish, which had been soaked for an hour in this 4NP at one microgram per per litre. And given the choice of the water that had gone over this fish or just clean water that hadn't, they always chose the clean water. They didn't come towards the one that had this other smell in it. So basically they are avoiding it. Do
1: the scientists think that this will be true for all fish, Helen, or just this species? Could this be true of all river fish being affected in this way? I think
2: we don't know for sure, but the likelihood that it it could well be, given that this chemical is lipophilic, which means essentially it sticks to fatty substances. And the idea is we think it's almost coating the fish, which could happen in any other other types of fish. And fish do have very similar ways of sensing smell and sensing each other. That will obviously be something we need to look at. But this is really quite worrying. Um, And it it really the take-home message, I think, is um, from this kind of study is that we shouldn't just assume because a chemical at a certain concentration doesn't kill animals and plants outright that it it certainly doesn't rule out the possibility that these sub-lethal effects could well be altering these creatures ability to survive in the wild especially when you consider that the natural world really is becoming this cocktail of different chemicals and pollutants that we throw into it.
1: So being cleaner isn't necessarily always better, certainly where soap's concerned. Uh, Time to wind the clock back about 25,000 years to the time of the Neanderthals, because although we've had some guesstimates as to what they might have looked like, this week there's a really interesting paper which has come out in the journal Science, in which scientists have used genetics to work out what Neanderthals would have looked like from their colour point of view. And they have been looking at one particular part of the genome, which is what's called the MC1R, the melanocortin one receptor. That receptor is how your body responds to a hormone in the bloodstream called MSH melanocyte stimulating hormone and it tells your cells how to deal with melanin, the stuff that makes you have dark skin and dark hair. And people who have paler skin and even red or ginger hair have a slightly different version of how this gene works than people who have darker complexions. So there's a group of scientists led by Carles Laluetza-Fox he's at the University of Barcelona and he's got together with some colleagues around Europe and they have genetically sequenced from two Neanderthal specimens, one from Italy and one from Spain, this gene. And what was really interesting is when they got the gene sequence out, it wasn't like any gene sequence you find in modern humans. So they thought, I wonder what it would have made these people look like. So they put this gene into some cells in the dish and then added some of this MSH hormone to trigger it. And it behaved identically to if you put a gene from someone who had red or ginger hair and pale skin, into their gene, into those cells. So this tells us that Neanderthals would have had amongst their number ginger and pale-skinned people like we do in modern humans. And it also tells you, apart from that being interesting, one key thing, which is that people didn't know where Neanderthals went, why they went extinct. We don't know if they interbred with modern humans and got diluted out or whether we just killed them off. Now, if they interbred with us, and they therefore got diluted out, you'd expect their genes to still be cropping up in the human population somewhere. They screened through 2,800 versions of this gene that they amplified in the Neanderthals, and they couldn't find that sequence in any modern humans, which strongly suggests that actually Neanderthals died out, rather than actually going, going, you know, into our population.
2: And could it be that it was this fair skin that meant they weren't very well adapted perhaps? Could that be something to do with their downfall?
1: Well that's a good point but I think in fact the reverse is true and they're saying this is really interesting because it looks like we have evolved as humans came out of Africa which is the cradle of civilization. it's where modern humans came from, as we came out and went north um, it looks like modern humans and our other relatives Neanderthals independently lost the ability to have dark skin and dark complexion probably because as you get, well I say it's grim up north, as you go further north there's less sun and therefore it's less advantageous to have dark skin, why waste the energy on it and, and also you might get deficient in vitamin D which you need sunlight for so- It's
2: quite incredible I think this idea of having these genes, these ancient ancient genes and it gets us a picture of these gingerhead Neanderthals walking around. It's just it blows I my think it's mind, incredible actually. that we
1: can probe the genes of someone who was walking around on Earth twenty five thousand plus years ago. Absolutely
2: amazing. amazing, absolutely amazing. Well, as always, I can't um, get away without talking about creatures and animals in the world uh, during the news. And and if you have ever seen a ladybird or a ladybug, if you're listening in the states, waggling its legs frantically in the air while it struggles to get get itself back on its feet. You'll um, know that many animals with round, hard shells do find themselves getting in serious trouble if they accidentally flip over. Beetles tend to use their legs and wings. Tortoises, for instance. Tortoises, for instance. Um, If they live in fresh water, they tend to be quite flat-shelled and they have very long muscular necks, which means they can use that to flip themselves back over again. So they're all right. The beetles can use their wings to help right them up. But the ones, the turtles that live on land... In fact, Chris, you might know about this, that... um, the ancient explorers who went off around the world in sh- sailing ships used to take the Tor- giant yeah. land tortoises. because
1: they were that you could put, turn them upside down in the ship and they couldn't get away That's and it, they, yeah. they kept themselves fresh because they are alive. Nice fresh meat, ship.
2: absolutely. So this is something we've known about for a long time that these poor tortoises and turtles really do get a bit stuck on their backs. But now a team of scientists from the Budapest University of Technology and Economics in Hungary have conducted a study on these land-based turtles in the wild and they've developed a mathematical model of how well different shaped shells can naturally right themselves if they turned on their backs and so essentially if you pushed an empty shell along the ground how likely is it that it would land it's the right way up
1: what's the bottom line and
2: basically it seems that nature has really elegantly equipped some of the turtles with shells that automatically right themselves if they're flipped over like the
1: turtle equivalent of a roll bar But what about the ones that don't? Yeah.
2: So basically, the very tall shells. In terms, there's a star turtle which has a very tall, domed shell. Has a natural tendency to roll back. Its only real stable position is one, and that's the right way up. You've got some other shells which have two stable positions. One is on their back, and one is on their front, so they can just as easily get stuck on their back as their front. The really bad ones are the ones in between, where they've got three stable positions: on the back, on their front, and also on their side. Which means they can get stuck halfway through a roll, getting back onto their front. So those. Amazing. These creatures are
1: still alive on Earth, really isn't it? Well I think,
2: th- I think we have to also consider it's not just about writing themselves and that shells. there's other forces making shells different shapes like the ability to dig and the ability to control water loss and stuff so it's not just about that but it is rather lovely that there are these perfectly designed um, shells doing these things in the world. It's wonderful. It adds a whole
1: new meaning to the term turn turtle doesn't it? But, um, just to finish up there's a really interesting study that's come out this week. It's been done by a guy at Johns Hopkins. His name's Paul Talele, uh, and he's been looking at broccoli because he and his group have been wondering how broccoli affects your likelihood of developing cancers of various types and there's a chemical in broccoli which is called sulforaphane and this is also known as SF and what they think it does is put cells into a kind of uh, protected state where they turn on various genes that make them better able to cope with various insults including ultraviolet so what they did to find out whether it could ward off skin cancer because of UV rays was to recruit six volunteers they asked them to avoid eating broccoli and vegetables like it for a week or so before the study and for three days before the study they painted broccoli extract into a, onto a patch of, of these volunteers backs and they left a patch of skin next to it unpainted so that was the control skin and then they came along and blasted the skin with a dose of uv sounds <laughs> good to me. and then used a machine called a chromometer which measures how red things are to measure the degree of sunburn so the redness of the skin in an objective way and then they compared the untreated skin with the treated skin, and they found that the treated skin had 37% less redness than, and therefore inflammation and therefore potentially risk of, of UV damage compared with the untreated skin. That is skin. incredible.
2: Is it literally just a pureed broccoli, basically?
1: effectively the chemical is in high titers in broccoli so you can get it out fairly in, in, easily and they were just extracting this and painting it on. Uh, so the fact that they got 37% less burn suggests it could have quite a big impact on your ability to resist sunburn. They've narrowed down a few genes that they think it might be triggering including one called NQO1, another one called GSTA1 and one called hemoxygenase 1 and these genes are linked to what's called a protect, sorry a cytoprotective effect so they, they put cells into a, a state which gives them the ability to fight off the kind of damage that things like UV might be able to do
2: Fantastic, it sounds great You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris and Helen We are talking this week about stem cells so if you've got any questions at all about the t- types of diseases that stem cells are being used to investigate, you can email us chris at scientist.com.
5: The Naked Scientist
1: Podcast brought to you by thenakedscientists.com. This is the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Helen. We are talking about cloning technology. In a short while we'll be talking to Ian Wilmot, who is the person who invented the concept of cloning sheep. He created Dolly the Clone Sheep and we'll be talking to him about the implications of cloning and we'll also be taking a trip to the Manchester Science Festival, which has been running this week, where we were all up there and uh, at Piccadilly Train Station, in fact, on Wednesday morning. But before then, uh, I have a couple of questions, uh, including this one for you, Helen. Uh, This says, dear... um, DNA scientist is from Melissa Melissa and she says I love your podcast I listen to it while I'm in the lab I've got a question why don't fish get lost in the ocean
2: That's a great question. Of course, um, fish have got all sorts of sensors they use um, at different stages in their life to make sure that they know where they are. Um, They can smell, they can hear, we think they may even have magnetic um, ability to sense magnetic fields. One thing that a study has been done is shown that how on a coral reef um, do fishes know where to go and that you think that because they form eggs that that drift through the water column and little larvae, they should all be mixed up and that, that there should be no genetic similarity on a reef compared to one next door. But actually, looking at the genetics, there are really small clusters of fish that don't Seem to swap um, between reefs, and why? Why is that? And how do how do the tiny, tiny little um, fish know to come back? So they did an experiment with this, and they actually made little piles of artificial reef by kind of piling up a bit of dead coral, and they actually played the noise of coral reefs because if you if anyone has ever have you ever been diving you've dived haven't you Chris oh it's what's, fantastic
1: yes I went diving in the Cook Islands what's
2: one thing about the the oral uh, auditory sensation yeah you of can hear
1: roof? you can hear fish eating coral You it's can incredibly crunch, crunch. crunch, noisy crunch. Place. it's noisy and there's,
2: this, there's little creatures called snapping shrimp which live within the sort of three dimensional structure of a reef and they make this incredible crackling noise I can't make sort of on the it's incredible just all the time anyway so they played these noises in these lumps of coral and some that didn't have that noise and they basically found that the tiny little larvae fish recruited if you like they went to the ones that were met playing noises um uh, rather than the ones that won't play noises, So we know they're actually tuning in. They're hearing in the reefs, and that's how they get there. We know that there's other studies showing that they can smell um, similar fish, and they, we think that's uh, think one reason why things like salmon know which river to come back to after they've made their huge migration out to sea and they come back to the same river. We think that might be about smell. So there's all different ways that fish don't get lost, and they are pretty good at it, I have to say. It's pretty amazing, the things they can do, the places they can go.
1: So was the headline when they wrote that story up? There's no place like home then
2: they might have done but that would be dreadful (laughs) chris i've got a lovely email here from uh, julia who says she's an american living in amsterdam and she would like to know why sometimes you get goosebumps when you hear a particularly good piece of music she says she gets it from certain parts of rhapsody in blue
1: does it affect you in that way? Do you get?
2: Oh, absolutely! I'm just trying to think which ones. I, 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 don't know. It always, it always changes. I love uh, "Unfinished Sympathy" by Massive Attack. That one makes the hair stand on the back of my neck a bit.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think the answer to this is it's down to emotion, of course. Um, why do we get goose pimples? It's because if you look at where they occur from, they're the base of where the hairs come out of your skin. Um, when we were hairier animals, and if you look at an animal that is scared, when it gets very scared, it looks bigger because all its hair stands on end. And the reason hairs stand on end is because is at the base of each hair where you get goose pimples there are tiny muscles and they're called um, uh, erector muscles
6: Yes, which mm.
1: make your hair stand up and piloerection is the term for making hair stand on end. And so anything that stresses an animal or causes an emotional response will make this happen, as well as a thermal response. It's a way of, by making your hair stand on end, you trap more air against your body and you therefore reduce heat loss. And
2: that's why we get goosebumps when we're cold. Exactly. We? Yeah. But
1: when you're scared, the part of the brain that coordinates all this is called the hypothalamus and it sits at the bottom of your brain and it coordinates what's called your sympathetic nervous system. The part of the nervous system that's involved in fight or flight. If, if someone attacks you and you need to run away or you need to turn around and fight then you obviously want to make yourself look bigger by puffing up all your hair so that person's scared of you you make yourself look redder because we know that people are more scared of if you're red it makes you look angry and this says more testosterone more aggression more anger and this is why you get goosebumps when some things cause an emotion which makes you feel very wound up or stressed or, or makes those shivers go down your spine because it's literally just triggering that response
2: Excellent. Well, we are very proud to announce that this week, Chris, our very own Chris right here, has become the first recipient of the Josh Award, a new award recognising innovation in science communication awarded by the Manchester Museum of Science and Industry. This took place as part of the first Manchester Science Festival, which has just happened. And so we, went, we sent Ben and Dave up to Manchester to join in the festivities.
7: The 20th to the 28th of October 2007 marks the Manchester Science Festival. And of course, where there's science, there'll be naked scientists... So we've come to Manchester Piccadilly train station where we're trying out a few of our favourite kitchen science experiments on the unsuspecting people of Manchester. So Dave, what have we got lined up for people here today?
8: All sorts of experiments. One of is putting a Pyrex bowl in some vegetable oil and it disappears, which actually goes down really well with adults. We've also got a microwave, for which we've been putting all those things in it, which you always wanted to do at home, but you really can't. And we've been putting in soap, which expands and turns into a great big pile of foam. Putting in a light bulb, which glows
7: purple and other strange colours. And we've also been putting in wire wool, which got loads of cool sparks. And are people enjoying it? I mean, obviously people have come here for a reason. They've come here to get a train. They haven't come here to do some experiments. So do you think they're enjoying this interruption?
8: It seems like quite a good way of getting the people who've got half an hour to wait for a train, and we can distract them for a bit.
7: We had lots of people here. Many of them said they didn't like science at school, but they seem to be enjoying this. I'm here with David from Science Made Simple and he's also doing a few little science experiments here. So what are you doing as part of the science festival?
8: Today, really, we're having a look at the science of sound. So we have a gloverphone here that sounds a bit
7: like this. Now, a gloverphone by the looks of it, is a vinyl glove like you might see in a doctor's office with a long brightly coloured tube sticking off the bottom and there seems to be a plastic drinking straw sticking into one of the fingers that's actually quite nice, it sounds a bit like a bassoon and the nice thing about it
8: is at one end of it you get a lot of vibrations that people can actually feel you put your finger on top of it and it's really tickly. you can feel the vibrations and out of the other end we have an opening where the sound comes out so it's linking vibration and sound sound and vibration
7: What else have you got to explain things here? Well, what we have
8: here is, uh, well, it's a recording of Shirley Bassey, but maybe as you've never heard
7: Shirley before. Uh, I'll just set her up. Okay. well, from what I can tell, this is an old vinyl record, and it seems to have a VW camper van on the top. Now, I've got a record player at home, I quite enjoy listening to vinyl, but I've never listened to vinyl using a camper van.
8: What we have here is a camper van with a little stylus in the bottom of it and it's powered by a battery to run around the record so the needle, that's the stylus, is in the grooves of the record. It's got a little speaker in the top of the van, so it's
7: a miniature record player. So instead of the record turning on a turntable, the camper van actually rotates around the record to play the music for you?
8: Absolutely. So I'll set it up now and we'll let's see if we can listen to a little bit of Shirley Bassey.
7: Well, it's certainly working. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure that's how Shirley really wanted people to listen to her,
8: though. No, no, probably not how she wanted to l- listen to it. One of the reasons it sounds a bit strange is that your record player at home knows to speed up going around the outside of the record and slow down as it gets towards
7: the centre of the record a shorter distance so when it's t- towards the outside of the record you have so much further to go for one rotation so it needs to do that a bit quicker
8: absolutely, absolutely but our little camper van here unfortunately doesn't know that it has to do that and so the sound starts to sound really really weird as you get closer
7: into the centre <laughs> well I think it's probably best that we uh, listen with CDs at home but uh, David thank you so much and I hope you enjoy the rest of the festival
8: thank you very much indeed, thank you
7: also at the Manchester Science Festival is living legend Johnny Bull. Now, Johnny, do you think it's important that people get the opportunity to engage with science at events like this? I, I, think,
3: I think they do. I, I don't think they should all be naked, as you are, you know. I'd like to keep my underpants on. But it's very important that we engage them. The difficulty is in engaging people who aren't interested in science. You can always get the people who are already interested in science in. And well, there are many more that really would love it if we could only nurture them in and light them up. It's a scientific world, it's a technological world, it's an engineering world, it's a, and it's a magical world, and all of this gets better. We do scientifically improve on every aspect of science every year, and we've got to tell more people about it and bring more young people in so to the next generation to continue the
7: successes. Well, we've been doing a few demonstrations over at Manchester Piccadilly today, so is there any particular little science experiment that's been your favourite to do? Yes, I have
3: one, and you can do this with either a billiard cue... Or a a normal sweeping brush. Put your fingers about a yard or a metre apart, your hands outstretched a metre apart, and get somebody, you can do it, put the brush or the baby on the two fingers. The head or the thick end is at one end and the light end is at the other end. So when your fingers come in, it's going to um, overbalance, isn't it?
7: I would expect it would overbalance, yeah.
3: So close your eyes and slowly bring your hands together and you'll, you'll be amazed by what happens because you'll still be doing it when your fingers touch in the middle. Explain that.
7: That's fantastic. Well, we will have to do that in kitchen science at some point soon, but uh, thank you ever so much for chatting to us. Pleasure. Now, Michael and Charlie here have had a go at all of our experiments. So what do you think about having science experiments in somewhere like a
6: train station? It's very interesting because people, just while they're walking past from out of a train, they can just have a look at the science experiment and go, ooh, look at that, it's interesting. So people who wouldn't normally go to something like a science fair walk past and if it's interesting, they can just have a quick look. So do you think that
7: this sort of thing would encourage you to do more science at school?
6: Yeah, I reckon so. I mean, if you're interested in it, you're, you're going to want to carry on and possibly even do it after, after QCSE and do it for A-level and stuff like that. It's really interesting if you know what it's like. Well, that's it
7: for The Naked Scientist at Manchester Piccadilly Train Station as part of the Manchester Science Festival. But next time you're waiting for a train, just think about what science experiments you could be doing.
2: Thanks, Ben. That was Ben reporting from the Manchester Science Festival.
1: But our show this week is all about stem cells and cloning, which are topics that have received a lot of attention over the years. And we're going to try and dig deep and find out just how these methods work and why they've stirred up so much controversy. And to get us started, this week we sent Mira along to UCL's Centre for Stem Cell Research to find out the basics of stem cell technology.
6: Stem cells. We've all probably read about them in the papers. But what exactly are they? And how are they benefiting scientific research? This week, I went to the lab of developmental biology expert Professor Claudio Stern at University College London to find out how his team create and use stem cells in their research. But I had to start by asking just what a stem cell actually is.
9: Basically, a stem cell is a cell that can self-renew, which means that it can grow for a very long time and retain its quality. So it stays the same as it grows through many, many divisions. So they're found in many places in the adult and in the embryo where they divide and produce daughters that differentiate into different tissues of the body. In the adult, for example, there is a need for parts of the body to renew themselves constantly throughout life, for example in the skin where we lose layers of the skin all the time and so we have stem cells that are specialised in maintaining that so that there's a, a continuous production of cells that will replace the ones that are being lost
6: But you work with embryos, don't you, in your lab?
9: Uh, Yes, we do, yeah.
6: How do you obtain the stem cells that you work with in your lab?
9: To obtain embryonic stem cells, which are cells that will not only divide for an unlimited period of time in the lab, but also are capable of giving rise to pretty much any cell type in the body, we just use very early embryos. Uh, In our case, we use chick embryos. And so by taking these cells out of the embryo and placing them in a culture under appropriate conditions and with the right medium, some cells will then survive to the stage at which they will self-replicate for a very very long time and then you can maintain them forever pretty much in the lab.
6: Is there a different process used in, in order to get human stem cells made?
9: Well in a sense the principle is the same so one possibility would be to have a human embryo, a very early embryo, and then to take the cells from that embryo and place them in culture under the uh, similar conditions to what I described.
6: How could you get stem cells from an adult?
9: One way would be to try and get a biopsy, for example, from tissue that contains stem cells, and then place that in culture. Another way is to take the nucleus of a differentiated cell, which the cell, won't, as I said, won't divide, but if that is placed in an environment that can reprogram it to become embryonic again like an egg cell, then that nucleus will be reprogrammed and the genetic material of the adult individual will now become like an early embryonic stem cell that can then be allowed to divide in culture. And then that will continue to divide and produce identical copies of itself.
6: So that's nuclear transfer, that method?
9: Yes, that's nuclear transfer.
6: It's actually quite hard for that to result in a a growing cell after.
9: Technically, it's quite difficult to do. It's, the cell is very fragile and it's very small. The nucleus is fragile itself, and it's quite an involved manipulation. It requires very good hands and very good microscope, and only a proportion of, of the cases will continue to establish a cell that will divide. So one has to do it many times to get a single cell that will establish itself.
6: So, Claudio, I mean, I've mentioned earlier that you do most of your work with stem cells from chick embryos and just with chick embryos in general. What are you hoping to find out with your research?
9: Well, chick embryos have the advantage that they're easy to get and they're relatively inexpensive. We just get them out of the egg. And one of the questions we're trying to resolve is really what makes a cell be a stem cell? What are the particular genes or gene combinations that establish a cell, a cell's properties in terms of being able to divide and replicate itself for a very long time without differentiating? And at the same time, conversely, what causes cells that are dividing to adopt particular fates? And we're particularly interested in finding out what makes the nervous system and the brain and what are the cues that cells use to become particular parts of the central nervous system. One of the most fundamental questions in biology is to explain how cells that are genetically identical can adopt different fates so that you end up with a body that's made up of the right proportions of the right tissue types that can function together in a coherent way. Being able to understand that hopefully should get us to a position where we can manipulate the fates of those cells to generate in culture cells of particular types that might be useful for therapy or other clinical applications.
6: So understanding how a cell chooses its fate could enable us to manipulate them into becoming the exact cell that we want. If that becomes possible, then it could transform treatments for conditions like diabetes, where a patient's pancreas is unable to produce enough insulin to take up the glucose in their blood. Stem cells could be directed to make more insulin-producing cells, which could potentially then be transplanted into a diabetic, enabling them to produce their own insulin and not have to use injections anymore. It's this therapeutic potential of stem cells to provide treatments for numerous conditions that makes the work of research teams like Claudio's so important for medical development. That was Mira talking to
2: Claudia Stern at the UCL Institute for Stem Cell Research and we'll be discussing further medical applications of stem cell research in just a moment.
1: This is The Naked Scientist. Thank you, Helen. And if you would like to ask us any questions about what we're talking about this week, then you can get in touch. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com.
2: Oh, we just heard from Maggie in Ilkshaw in uh, St Andrews and she wants to know what gives us a toothache.
1: Okay, Maggie, Uh, a toothache is when you have irritation to the nerve supply to a tooth. The most common reason why you have irritation to the nerve supply to a tooth is because you have sensitivity to cold, which can do it to some people, sensitive teeth. But usually it's because you have a hole in your tooth, a carie. And when you have a hole in your tooth, it's caused by bacteria secreting acid. And these are usually streptococcal bacteria that metabolise sugars in your diet and turn them into acids, which then drill holes in the tooth, which is made of calcium phosphate and can be dissolved by acid, When the the hole becomes big enough, then the bacteria can start to change the chemical environment inside the tooth, and you can get abscesses, which is an infection inside the tooth, and this is painful because of swelling and inflammation, which winds up nerves, or just the chemical changes around the tooth initially as it starts to happen can be enough to make that happen. Another less common but very serious reason for getting a toothache is if you get an infection in a sinus, the nerves that supply your teeth run through the floor of, say, your maxillary air sinus. That's the... A sinus behind your cheek and the infection in the sinus can irritate the nerve fibers running across the floor of the sinus and make you think you've got a toothache when you haven't so you can actually have a toothache but it's not a toothache it's a sinus infection
2: so there you go that's the science of toothaches in just a couple of minutes
1: fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed
5: <laughs> on your way to work or even at work. Mm -hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward
1: slash podcast. Now, we've been talking about stem cells uh, this week in a big way, and someone who works on them is Roger Peterson. He's from, uni- he's from Cambridge University. Hello, Roger. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Now, listening to what Claudio Stern was saying to Mira there, so the bottom line is then you have stem cells in tissues. Those stem cells are there to make new cells in that tissue when the cells clap out and die. But I guess the key question is then how do those cells become specialised to do that job in the first place?
10: So, indeed, stem cell biologists start with this question, what is stemness? That is to say, what sets stem cells out and makes them special? And that, as you've been hearing from Professor Stern, is the ability of unspecialized cells to renew themselves as unspecialized cells but still retain this ability to specialize. That's a very special quality. We call it stemness. Uh, Why this is important in our bodies is that this enables our bodies To replace cells, the specialized cells that um, either uh, get worn out or get damaged, it enables them to replace them and to renew our tissues using the unspecialized cells that are present in those tissues. That's why we last as long as we do. So if you have, uh,
1: say, if you look at your skin, there will be a population of cells in the base of our skin which are stem cells and know how to make not only new skin stem cells, but also new skin cells.
10: That's, in fact, the the case. The cells in our skin that are stem cells are scattered throughout our skin, and there are probably some in our hair follicles too. Uh, Certainly a lot of hair follicles in in a mouse, and we know, for example, there, there are a lot of stem cells in the hair follicles.
1: So... Are those skin stem cells then different to, say, the, skin, the, the stem cells that will be in my bone marrow making new blood cells? And, and can they swap places and do the same job?
10: The stem cells in our skin are almost certainly different than the stem cells in our blood. And that's why our skin makes skin on the outside of us instead of blood. But what we want to know is what do they share? What's this property of stemness that's shared between the skin and the blood? And, and, and presumably,
1: can you swap them around? Can you persuade a bone marrow stem cell, which is easy to get at, to turn into a, a cell that might be able to, say, be a precursor for cells that make insulin in the pancreas? So you could turn a diabetic pancreas into a normal pancreas.
10: Well, to make them useful, stem cells of any kind would be uh, fantastic if you could swap them around like that. Some people say they think you can, but many other people believe you can't.
1: So there are many different types of stem cells then, um, and they're specialised to the job that they do in their bit of the body. Indeed. But do we understand how they get specialised to do that? Because I suppose that's a key question, isn't it?
10: Well, right now, we're just beginning. We're just scratching the surface to understand what this, this stuff, this stemness is. And it seems to be the uh, postponement of a decision about what to be. That is to say, the ability to uh, uh, sustain ambiguity uh, to make a decision up later on and that's a special state of, of the genes and the, and the DNA in the cell
1: But to what extent is it due to the environment in which a cell finds itself if I transplant a skin stem cell to my bone marrow, do the cells around it say, hey, you're in the bone marrow now, so stop behaving as a skin cell and start being bone marrow-ish or does it still try and make skin in the bone marrow?
10: well i don't think um, I don't think that exact experiment has been done. People have in fact placed blood stem cells in other places and found that they only made blood but so, yeah, so I mean if
1: we could i mean do we know why these cells make these decisions and say, right, I am going to only be a, a skin stem cell how, how is that achieved because that that sort of says this cell's now hardwired to do one job, which is kind of intriguing isn't it
10: so i think I think to answer your question, the environment is extremely important and and the The environment that keeps the cells in early development from specializing is an environment something like, uh, say, um, GCSE era that that keeps you from deciding whether to be a a surgeon or a, a GP. In other words, that's a decision you have to make later, so they aren't exposed to that decision very early on.
2: I think one of the questions I think on a lot of people's minds with stem cells is in relation to the kind of applications that we might, the medical applications that they might actually have in the future. I take it at the moment we aren't using them for anything, uh, for any diseases right now, but perhaps we would in the future?
10: Well, actually, um, I should correct this impression that stem cells aren't used in therapy. Blood stem cells have been used in therapy for well over a decade and will continue to be. Many patients have bone stem cellulose, stem cell or bone marrow stem cell uh, transplants.
2: And is that is that for leukemia?
10: For leukemia and other diseases. How, however, uh, the, the, the question is when will the other kinds of stem cells be used? And, and in particular, I'm interested in the stem cells that come from very early stages of development, that come from, in fact, growing fertilized eggs uh, in, in the Petri dish. Uh, from in vitro fertilization patients and these surplus fertilized eggs can be developed into something we call embryonic stem cells that seem to have the widest possible ability to specialize into useful tissues.
1: So in other words they haven't made decisions to be any particular part of the body or they've made fewer decisions and therefore they can still turn into more things at that stage?
10: They haven't made any decisions except perhaps deciding not to be placenta.
1: Right so how do you turn those cells then into the bits of the body you want and are we able to do that
10: yet well that's what we're trying to figure out actually and in fact we do have some answers but not all of them it uh, it seems that that it's a mixture of decisions uh, made by the environment based on the presence of certain things proteins that make th- make them make decisions and on the absence of other things so the absence of is just as important as the presence of things
2: and uh, kind of going back to the the therapeutic side of stem cells what kind of things do you think we might be able to work towards in terms of um, the the treatments based on stem cell technology?
10: So it almost seems certain that the earliest clinical applications that are relevant are going to be the, not actually based on transplantation, as most people think, but the use of stem cells to discover uh, new drugs or test the effectiveness or toxicity of new drugs that are developed for treatment of people. In other words, just using the cells to develop them into nerves in the Petri dish and test those nerves or heart cells or liver cells.
2: So almost maybe, is that kind of replacing animals as a subject as well in in terms of drug testing and so on?
10: Well, indeed, I think this is one of the most likely, one of the most intensive uses of stem cells.
1: Thank you very much. That's Roger Peterson. He's from the University of Cambridge. He's with us. If you'd like to ask him any questions, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Stripping down science.
10: Okay,
4: let's do it.
1: The Naked Scientists It is The Naked Scientists with Dr Chris and Dr Helen and joining us now from the University of Edinburgh is Ian Wilmot, hello Ian Hi Thank you very much for joining us it's 11 years since the Dolly days I suppose you could say um, at that time when you created the world's first cloned mammal um, it must, you know, there was no precedent for doing this so why were you doing it?
11: The ambition was to be able to make uh, uh, genetic changes in in farm animals so that they would produce uh, proteins needed to treat human disease. That was the aim when we first started.
1: So how successful was it? I mean, we know you got Dolly out of it, but it it must have been terrifically difficult to actually make this happen, which is why you you got such an accolade for doing it. But why is it so difficult?
11: Well, I think what you have to... um, consider is the mechanisms which control uh, development. We all came from a a single cell of an embryo which is smaller than a grain of of salt and almost all of our cells have exactly the same genetic information in them. The the way in which the many different tissues that we have are formed is because the functioning of the genetic information is changed systematically to produce uh, muscle, bone, skin and so on, all of the different tissues that we have. And we used to believe that the mechanisms which bring that about are so complex and so rigidly fixed that it would not be possible to reverse them. And the most important thing to come from the Dolly experiment was to show that that's not true because what it's led to now is people thinking, well, can we find other ways of of resetting the genetic clock um, without producing an embryo? And people are making exciting advances with that area.
1: Do you have any feeling as to what the chemicals are that are in an egg that have those special effects of resetting the genetic clock in a in a cell which would normally be a skin cell, which is, I mean, you used a skin cell from the other in, in Dolly, didn't you? Do, you? do you have any feel for what those factors are?
11: Very little. I would say this is the most disappointing thing of the past decade. Uh, people have shown that putting in four specific proteins into mouse cells can make them go back to the beginning of development, but as far as we know, nobody's been successful in applying the same approach in, uh, in, with human cells, and the efficiency is extraordinarily low with less than 0.1% of the cells being changed in that way. So so it seems that we have a lot more still to learn about this mechanism.
1: So to put that in perspective, you were, say, making a 1,000 potential embryos and one of them would turn into a potential dolly.
11: Well, the the one in a 1,000 is actually cells without making an embryo. The efficiency, if you go through the embryo route at the present time, is something like 2 or 3% would become a offspring, depending on species and all sorts of things like that. Why do you think it's so low, Ian? well i think we should still be surprised that it works at all uh, because the mechanisms you know are so rigidly rigidly fixed that's why uh, tissues tend to stay in a particular state in a relatively stable way and of course the egg did not e- evolve uh, to a- achieve this particular uh, change what we're doing is taking advantage of mechanisms which normally function uh, to modify the mechanisms uh, uh, of the, on the DNA coming in from the sperm and different mechanisms uh, for the DNA which is already residing in the egg at the time of fertilization. And there's, there's no reason why they should work perfectly uh, with genetic information coming in from an adult cell.
1: Why do you think it's so much easier to do this, I say easier relatively speaking, uh, to do this on, say, a mouse than it is with a bigger animal?
11: Uh, it may well be that um, it's easier to do experiments with the mouse, and therefore more experiments have been done. And if we were able to do as many with um, other species, that the efficiency would become similar. But there are differences between species. Um, just to give you one example, if you put when you put the genetic information into an unfertilized egg during ordinary cloning, you also have to stimulate the egg uh, to resume development. If you do this in um, in the sheep. It really makes no difference at all, as far as we know, whether you introduce the the genetic information and stimulate development at the same time more differently. In the mouse, you have to delay the process of of activation, as we call it. You have to delay the time when you stimulate the egg to resume development. The cow is between the two. It's an advantage to delay the activation, but it's not actually essential. So just a simple thing like that can have profound effects on the success rate. And, And again, we don't understand that. Some people have
1: said, um, just to wrap up, that when you do this technique, um, there is a danger that it may genetically alter the individual concerned. They they may have some kind of premature ageing phenomenon going on. Um, Is there any evidence for that? And if so, why?
11: Um... The, I don't think that the premature aging is associated with, uh, what genetic change in the sense of, an, of a, of a mutation. And there probably is some evidence of, of, mutation, but, but, you know, comparatively little. The main problem seems to be whether or not the functioning of the cell is restored to a, a normal state for an embryo or not. The b- business of premature aging is just a, a small component of resetting the length of the bodies called telomeres, which are at the end of our, uh, chromosomes and each time a cell divides the telomere is shortened so that beyond a certain point the cell is no longer able to, to divide um, the answer to your question about that is that there are one or two experiments and the Dolly experiment is one the other one that I can think of is with cattle in, carried out in, in Japan there are one or two experiments where the telomere length was not restored but in the vast majority of experiments where people have looked telomere length has been restored perfectly normally.
1: Which is encouraging news F- thank you very much Ian Wilmot that's Ian Wilmer. He's from the University of Edinburgh and he was the creator of the first cloned mammal and that was Dolly the Sheep back in
12: 1996. You're
2: listening to the Naked Scientists with Chris and Helen and now it's time to go over to Diana O'Carroll with a short and curly question.
12: Hello and welcome to Question of the Week with The Naked Scientists, where we're about to rummage around in the darker areas of the human body.
4: Hi, my name is John and I live in Hong Kong. My question is about pubic hair. Some people have said it is to protect your bit or to keep your bits warm or to make you smell more attractive to the opposite sex. I want to know why do humans have it, do other animals have it, and what its function is.
12: Well, all those islands of hair do look a bit silly, really. So what are they doing there?
4: My name is Christoph Soligo I'm a lecturer in human and primate evolution at University College London in the Department of Anthropology. I think a good indication of why we do have pubic hair comes from the distribution of the sweat glands that humans have. We essentially have two types of sweat glands, ones which are called eccrine glands, which are distributed over more or less the whole body, and they're the sweat glands which we use for uh, keeping cool. On top of these, we also have a second type of sweat glands, which are called apocrine glands. The distribution of apocrine glands essentially coincides with the distribution of pubic and also axillary hair in the armpits and the secretion from apocrine glands also contains small parts of cellular material. The cellular material gets broken down by bacteria, and that's what creates, to a large extent, our personal body odor. So the secretion from the sweat glands, together with the location and the hair, creates a nice, damp substrate for growth for bacteria. And the next step is a bit more complicated than just to smell more attractive to the opposite sex. Some research that's been done into this, where men were made to wear T-shirts, the same T-shirts, for several nights running, and women were afterwards asked to smell the T-shirts and to rank them uh, according to how attractive they found the smell. And the result was that women actually seemed to be able to detect genetic differences in the men, specifically in the composition of a genetic complex, which we call the major histocompatibility complex, and what's interesting there is that women were actually going for the men whose MHC composition was the most different to their own and that makes sense in the context of fighting diseases because if you have offspring with a very variable MHC complex this increases their ability to fight off disease.
12: So even if you're losing hair from your head you can rest assured that your pheromonal message is still getting out there Pubic and underarm hair makes a nice home for the bacteria that effectively amplify the smell of your genetic immunity. If your partner reckons your hairy bits smell good, then it's quite likely you both have immunity to different bugs and that potential offspring would inherit this. Having shed light on that one, next week we'll be doing a bit of physics. Hello,
3: my name's Paul Tevendale from Woking. Uh, My question concerns the speed of light. Um, If the speed of light is slower in glass than in air... Where does the energy come from to speed it up as it ex- exits the glass into air? And why does this not violate the law of conservation of energy?
12: And then I'll be finding out about the energy that can be gained upon the rising of the moon.
6: Hi, my name is Pete Chirakis. I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I was uh, out in the back one day and I was wondering if the sun is shining on the moon late at night and it's a full moon and the light's being reflected off the moon onto the plants at nighttime. Do they photosynthesize the light? And if they do... Can they survive only on that reflected light, or do they need direct sunlight?
12: Do you know anything about the energy that moves light, or the energy that can be gained from it? Send your answers to me at questionoftheweek at thenakedscientist.com, or have a look at our forum. That's all for this edition of Question of the
2: Week. Back to you guys. So, if light slows down when it goes into glass, where does it get the energy to speed up again? And can plants photosynthesize by moonlight? If you think you know, let us know emailing by emailing us on the week at thenakedscientist.com.
5: Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientist.com.
2: You're listening to The Naked Scientists, We've had a text message in from Keith in Watford. First off, he asks me if I've managed to put together a lamp to wake me up gently. We were talking a couple of weeks ago about um, being uh, woken up by uh, alarm clocks and I didn't Doesn't like a hit. lamp mean
1: getting hit? Doesn't someone oh, lamping you? I, don't, I, hope, I hope not. not. <laughs> anyway, no,
2: I haven't. So uh, any, any tips on that? Still looking forward to being uh, gently woken up in the mornings. But he does have a great question for Roger, which is, when stem cells reproduce, do they always do so accurately?
10: That's a very good question. If we can culture embryonic stem cells in the Petri dish, it looks like if we keep them happy, give them what they want to be healthy, the answer is yes. They seem to do very well genetically for a long period of time and also epigenetically, something I won't into, the, the thing that makes it intriguing is that possibly our bodies have the same kind of molecular insulation and possibly other tools to make stem cells last longer in a stable and, and completely normal state. That's a really interesting question that many people are studying.
2: Excellent. Thank you very much thanks, for that, Chris. Roger. Oh, sorry, thanks, Keith, for that question. That's
1: great. I have a very quick one here, which is uh, Peter of Carbrook says, this broomstick experiment Johnny Ball was going on about, uh, we tried the broomstick experiment, we all dropped it, what's supposed to happen. The, the long and the short of it is, boom, boom, that when you close your eyes, because you're moving your fingers together and you can't see what's actually happening, uh, the, uh, you move your finger less on the heavy end compared with the light end because of the effects of friction, and as a result you compensate for the, for the, the tipping effect and so it should actually stay on your finger. It it does sort of work, so give it a try. Anyway, uh, we've only recently been able to clone animals, but since we're talking this week about cloning and stem cell technology, we've actually been cloning plants for millennia, thousands of years, as it turns out. So for this week's Kitchen Science, Ben found out about a clone that you can do at home.
7: For Kitchen Science this week, we decided that we would talk to you about how you can clone an organism in your own home. That's right, you can actually clone something yourself at home, and it's really easy. I'm actually here at Cambridge University Botanic Gardens, and I'm here with Tim Upson. Hi, Tim. Hi there. We are looking into cloning plants today. Now, the cloning we've heard about so far involves expensive lab equipment and carefully removing DNA from one cell and putting it into another. So is that how you
13: do it with plants? No, well thankfully plants are much easier. You can snap off a bit, stick it in some soil and wonderfully it will produce some new roots and you've actually cloned a plant. It's the process of taking cuttings which millions of gardeners will do every year. So what is it that makes that new plant a clone? Well, it's because it's genetically identical to the parent. So, in contrast, if you were to sow some seeds, which have come back through sexual reproduction, of course, that's mixing of the genetic material
7: and you'll get variation. So, literally, all you have to do to clone a plant at home is to cut a piece of one plant and plant it in the soil.
13: Yes, plants have this wonderful property. Their cells can re-differentiate into different materials. So, essentially, if you take a shoot from a plant it will have leaves and it will have a stem usually just underneath the surface of that stem some of those cells in response to wounding and being cut will actually differentiate into roots and these are called adventitious roots new roots and hey presto you've got a plant with all
7: its functioning bits the leaves the stem and of course the roots. So it's the ability to differentiate into different cell types that uh, means a plant can do this but do you know why I wouldn't be able to cut off the tip of my finger and plant it in some agar and grow a whole extra hand?
13: Yes in animals they don't have this ability to differentiate cells once they become a certain part of the body unless I guess you go all the way back to stem cells which have a similar kind of ability to plants.
7: So could you consider plant cells to be very similar to stem cells in that regard?
13: Yeah I think that's a good analogy to make actually. So how
7: do we know that plant cells are capable of turning into all the different cell types?
13: We now know that all of these are controlled by what are sometimes called plant hormones or plant growth compounds. And a good example is a hormone called auxin, which encourages rooting. And of course, when you go to the garden and you can buy from the shelves what's called a plant rooting compound, that, that's high in auxins. And when you dip the end of your shoot, which you've just broken off into that powder, it gives it a burst of auxin, and that encourages
7: the roots to develop. Well, this sounds like a really good way for us to get more and different plants into our gardens. But is there any problems associated with having plant clones?
13: Well, there are. One good reason for cloning is because you find a plant which has very good characteristics maybe it has a particularly delicious fruit a wonderful flower but of course along with that can equally go some negative characteristics and that can be particularly problematic for example when we talk about susceptibility to pests and diseases if you do then get an outbreak of it and you've got a massive clonal plant
7: on an agricultural scale that could spell disaster if you're a farmer So a farmer would clone a particular plant because, for example, it's the most delicious banana and the easiest to sell. So for commercial reasons, cloning would make sense because you'll get more of the best
13: type of fruit. That's exactly right, and bananas are a very good example. Bananas are cloned on a commercial scale. If you go to the tropics and look at the commercial banana plantations, they're usually made up of clonal lines of selected cultivars. Bananas um, is synonymous with something called Panama disease, which is a fungal disease which actually attacks the water-conducting vessels. Some of the favoured banana clones, like Gros Michel and now Cavendish bananas, which are grown widely throughout the world for commercial purposes, have become vulnerable to this fungus. Uh, As soon as it starts to attack a field or essentially move From country to country, it can devastate that banana industry. So it can cause big problems. And, of course, we are talking potentially multi-million pounds worth of loss of crops here.
7: So how can we avoid this happening?
13: Well, it all comes back to encouraging genetic diversity. And all we have to do is to look to people like subsistence farmers. They wouldn't just grow one clone. They would grow a number. So if one proves potentially vulnerable to a pest and disease, they've got others which they can look to. Commercially, of course, now they're looking to breed more diversity into bananas and, of course, breeding in disease resistance, particularly to Panama disease, is obviously very important and a major goal.
7: So while cloning can offer us more and better fruit, it's always best to remember that it would only take a small outbreak of disease to take bananas off the shelves. That's all we have for Kitchen Science today. We'll be back next week.
2: Excellent. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Ben, for that. I've just had a question through an email from Santa Bennett, who says, do you believe that stem cell producing myelin could one day be used to treat MS?
1: I do, because we know about a stem cell which is called the O2A cell, which is a stem cell which we think is in the brain already, and whenever someone has a flare-up of MS and the nervous system gets attacked by the immune system which destroys the myelin that surrounds nerve cells, we think the reason they get better afterwards, at least for a time, is because these stem cells reawaken and produce new myelin-producing cells. Do you think that's reasonable, Roger?
10: Indeed. We have a team of scientists here in Cambridge working on that very problem.
1: Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, thank you very much to Roger Peterson, uh, also to Claudio Stern and Ian Wilmot, who are our guests this week, and our wonderful production team, Ben Mira, Diana O'Carroll and uh, Petro Minch. Next week, we're talking human migration, how we all came to be here out of Africa and into modern-day Britain. Any questions on that, send them to me, Chris, at The Naked Scientists are
5: sponsored by The Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information look us up online at nakedscientists.com.
0: Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities.